Good morning, church. Uh, Those of you that are here in person, or if you are watching online, welcome. We're glad that you're here this morning. Uh, I want to start off this morning uh, by acknowledging the obvious about today. Even though I look like him, I am not, in fact, Justin. Uh, So if you're wondering why Justin looks off today, it's because I'm John. Uh, I am the kids' ministry director here at CCC. Uh, Justin is traveling to Kansas to see family, so we're going to miss his words and his presence this morning. And to acknowledge the even more obvious about this morning, Merry Christmas, everybody. What a rare and wonderful opportunity that we have to gather together on Christmas Day. Christmas on a Sunday doesn't come very often, and I think that there's nothing more fitting to do on Christmas than worship the one who came to us as a baby all of those years ago. So this morning, we're going to be continuing our arrival series, and today, finally, we're going to talk about the arrival of Jesus himself. So when the Christmas story is described in Scripture, we see that The first response of each individual who encounters Jesus is worship. For example, after learning that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, Mary crafted one of the most beautiful songs in all of Scripture. In Luke chapter 1, she cries, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. When the angels appear to the shepherds, Angels who, by the way, worshipped by singing glory to God in the highest. When the angels reveal to them that the Messiah has been born, Luke chapter 2 tells us that the shepherds went with haste to see the baby, and afterwards they glorified and praised God for all they had heard and seen. In Matthew's account, when the wise men saw the child with Mary his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. Back in Luke, chapter 2, two faithful believers are introduced, Anna and Simeon. They're both in the temple when Mary and Joseph present Jesus for circumcision. Let's look at Simeon first. We know that Simeon was an older man. Luke tells us that he was righteous and devout. In fact, the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that before he died, he would see the coming Christ. And for years... Simeon had waited faithfully to see God's promise of salvation come to fruition. And on that day, when Simeon's path finally crosses with the Messiah, his reaction is that he took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God. That same day, we see a prophetess, Anna, who also is a devout follower of God. She's been without a husband for 50 years during which time she devoted all of herself to the Lord, spending day after day at the temple, worshiping by fasting and praying. And when she finally sees Jesus, Luke tells us that she began to give thanks to God. So there's a pattern here, and it's a pattern of worship. The first reaction from so many of these major characters is to praise God for what they're experiencing. Now, I don't point all these instances out in the Christmas story so that I can then turn to you and say, see, see, they did it, you should worship too. I think 
that a better aim for this morning is to examine why they worshipped. Or, better yet, to ask the question, who are they worshipping? I don't know about you, but so often in my own life, I get so caught up in what I'm supposed to be doing as a Christian, right? Like, what are the steps that I'm supposed to follow? But following Jesus doesn't start with what we do. It starts with Jesus himself. And so I I want to begin not by instructing us to do something, but rather by turning our gaze towards the one whom they were worshiping on that first Christmas. I want to turn our gaze towards Jesus. I want all of us this morning to bask in the overwhelming goodness of who Jesus is. Because here's the thing, his goodness is so vast and so bottomless that as we gaze at him, the more of him is revealed. As we gaze at him, the more deeply we know him and desire him. Charles Spurgeon once said it this way, The religion of our Lord Jesus Christ contains in it nothing so wonderful as himself. But I feel in many ways at a loss for words. Because how do we sum up all that Jesus is? Spurgeon also said this. He said, Jesus Christ himself, what an ocean opens up before me. In which direction shall I turn your thoughts? I am embarrassed with riches. I know not where to begin. And once I begin, where shall I end? The words are few, but the meaning vast. Jesus Christ himself. I kind of feel like Spurgeon this Christmas morning. Where do we even begin? Dane Ortland wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly, and in it he lays bare for us the heart of Christ in all its unfathomable and infinite beauty. And the idea of the book is that no amount of sin or trouble or anxiety or pain or difficulty can ever outweigh his love for us. His compassion is endless, and his posture towards us is always arms wide open. And we see this compassion so clearly in many places in the gospel. Right before Jesus feeds the 5,000, Mark 6.34 tells us that when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew 20, 34, we read about two blind men. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. When a widow loses her son in Luke 7, 13, we read, When Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. When he sees the lepers, the sick, the hurting, the afflicted, the demon-possessed, those with spiritual aches, he moves towards them. His compassion and his heart is so deep and so full for his people that he moves towards them without fail. Brokenness does not scare him. Sickness does not repel him. Suffering does not cause him to sigh, turn away, and wash his hands of the problem. He is drawn naturally to all of these and more because at his core, he delights 
in healing and comforting. It's who he is. Jesus is described in Scripture as being the head of the body, meaning the church. And when we think of our own bodies, if something is injured or it's not working right, we tend to it. We, we make it right. We care for it. So how much more will Jesus care for his body, the church? How much more does he desperately want it to be healthy? A couple of weeks ago, uh, my 18-month-old son, Amos, came down with the stomach bug. Now, don't worry, I'm going to spare you all of the nasty details in this analogy, right? But let's just say that on more than one occasion, I was cleaning the floor extra well. Let's put it that way, all right? In fact, there were even times when I found myself lunging toward the sickness, right? Going so far as even to, to try to use my body and my clothes to catch things, right? <laughs> I didn't run away when he needed me. There, it wasn't even a question. My gut reaction was to run towards him. My love for him is too deep to let him suffer alone like that. So how much more does Jesus run towards our sickness, aching when he sees us in that state? His love for us is far too deep to let us suffer alone like that. Thomas Goodwin, a theologian and preacher who lived in the 1600s, said that Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. In other words, Christ delights when his people are made whole. He does not shy away from our hurt and our weaknesses. He runs to them, wanting more than anything to relieve us of those afflictions. It brings him deep joy when we rest in him, because that is who he is. But what about the days when Satan convinces you that Jesus would never want anything to do with someone with your secret sins, your addictions, your idols. It's one thing to be drawn to the, to the sick or the suffering, but sin, it's a different story, right? Sin, because it's so wretched, and the antithesis of who God is, it must be something that Jesus moves away from. And it's true, sin does kill and it destroys. It poisons every aspect of who we are and what we do here on earth. But in Ephesians chapter 2, God is described as being rich in mercy. He does not dole out mercy every now and then just when he feels like it. Mercy pours out of him. And in Jesus we see the physical manifestation of mercy, living out a life that exemplified to the highest degree the depths of that mercy. And later, in that same chapter of Ephesians, it's explained that we who were far away or dead in our sins have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus' sacrifice for us was quite literally Mercy itself being poured out onto the whole world. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. The joy set before him isn't referring to the fact that he was just willing to do it. Jesus' joy on the other side of the cross was the healing of his people. That's what drove him. His deep desire for his people to be made whole. Jesus didn't die so that he could stand on the other side with arms folded and say, look what I did for you. What are you going to do now? He did it with joy because his heart for his people is that they can be free from sin and be part of his family forever. Jesus didn't come to earth and complete a checklist of tasks that we are now indebted to him for. Jesus is not a means to an end. The point is that God loves us so desperately and so completely that he sent himself to be here with us. Jesus was the physical manifestation of himself. And so many times when we talk about the gospel, we talk as if eternal life is the end goal. Living forever after we die and not going to hell. That's the ticket, right? But eternal life in and of itself is not a gift. The beauty of the gospel is Jesus himself. The gift is not that we get to avoid hell, but that we get the giver himself. Now let me be clear. All of this is not to diminish the side of Jesus that disciplines or that calls us to holy living. Following Jesus, of course, requires active participation and self-sacrifice and growth. We are told that we're supposed to take up our cross daily to follow him. Following Jesus doesn't mean that we now have an excuse to act however we want because he's got us covered. He loves us far too much to leave us in our sin. But true obedience, true obedience is only possible for those who know Jesus intimately. So what do we do with all of this? Dane Ortland ends his book by arguing that the first step in living a Christian life is to come to Jesus. That's it. To come to him and enjoy all that he is. He says this, if an Eskimo wins a vacation to a sunny place, he doesn't arrive in his hotel room, step out onto the balcony, and wonder how to apply that to his life. He just enjoys it. He just basks. Before anything else, bask. Bask in his presence. The humble birth of Jesus reminds us that he didn't come for the polished version of ourselves. He came for the ordinary, complicated, struggling people that you and I are. His invitation for you this Christmas is for you to know him. To rest in the truth that he came to you. Because you were never able to go to him in the first place. So today, we rest in the goodness of Jesus. And we wait 
with expectant hope for the day when Jesus will bring heaven to earth and come and stay with us forever. Revelation chapter 2, chapter 21, verse 3 through 4 says this. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief and crying and pain, it will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Christmas morning. We thank you for a chance to gather together in your presence and to bask. Lord, I pray that as we finish out this year and move into the next one, that we not start each day just striving to live better lives. I pray that we would all first bask in your goodness, that we would turn our gaze to you. And as we do that, I trust that your spirit will move in us to help us live more faithfully for you and will grow us into people who look more and more like Jesus. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for his compassion and his mercy and his love. We look forward to the day when he will return. It's in his name we pray. Amen.